You know, we were singing Joy to the World. Uh, you may not realize it, but it was written by Isaac Watts, a very well-known author, writer, hymn writer. It was written in the year 1719. Put that in perspective, Texas was still under Spanish rule. Georgia was not even a colony yet, and the United States was 57 years away from independence. To bring my interns into the mix, I found some more stats here. The British had only established coastal trading posts in India. Venezuela and Peru were not yet countries and wouldn't become one for another hundred years. The Congo, well, it wouldn't be colonized for another 166 years. And yet this song was written. This song we all know, this song we're all familiar with, a song that is so well known out of all of our Christian hymns, it is the most published one. Watts drew upon Psalm 96 and 98 for inspiration, but undergirding it all was a passage that we don't often think about when it comes to Christmas. Genesis chapter 3, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. When Adam sinned, we all, what? Sinned. When he fell, we all fell. And God, in His mercy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote through Moses that He would make right what Adam made wrong in the first gospel. Listen to the third stanza again as we hear that this joy to the world finds its foundation in the cross. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. I don't know if you noticed it, but a lot of our Christmas carols, our Christmas hymns, are deeply theological in how the justice of God was satisfied at the cross. When we sing joy to the world, we think about the baby in the manger, and yes, that is true. But the hymn writers understood that 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 baby in the manger is inextricably linked to the man upon the cross. And so we see it in this hymn. We see it in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, talking about the curse. But then there's this other note. It didn't end at the cross, but in the triumph of His glory, seated at the right hand of God. Joy to the world again. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and what? Wonders of His love. And the wonders of His love. And wonders, wonders, wonders of His love. And it got me thinking, perhaps joy, perhaps joy to the world is a much deeper concept than we actually realize. Perhaps joy to the world is is far more pregnant in meaning than it is just as great as it is God becoming man. But undergirded by what would happen at the cross and glorified, seated at the right hand of God. So we're going to take today, and we're going to discover a bit more about joy. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, what a delight it is to sing praises to the name of the Son, to the King of kings, the Prince of heaven who sunk himself into human flesh and became man so that man might live. For what the first Adam did, the second would undo. And so, Lord, there is so much to understand in our theology when it comes to to our Lord Jesus Christ, seems so anemic. It seems so shallow. And yet, if we'll just marinate in the Scriptures just a bit, we realize that your grand master plan was far bigger than we could have imagined. And the things that we take for granted, especially our salvation and our eternity in heaven, 
with our Lord Jesus Christ cost. While free to us, cost Him everything. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, as I seek to rightly divide the Word of God, that I would equip the saints for the work of service, that I would encourage their hearts, that I would steel their minds toward a, toward a proper Christology, a high view of this baby in the manger. And Lord, in equipping us with this, in helping us to know more, would you deepen our worship? Would we bow lower? Would we raise our voices higher? Would we make our conversations more vocal about what the Lord did when He visited us, when He dwelt among us, when He lived the life that we could not live and died the death in our place. Lord, we are so excited to hear from You this morning. We pray that we would be ready, our hearts attentive, our minds ready to hear, ready to listen ready to understand. May we be fessed up. May we set aside the worries of the world. And Lord, for those here who have yet to repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. For those who are continuing to hold on to their own good works, for those who think that they are right with God when they have yet to bow the knee to Christ. Give them understanding today. Free their wills. Incline their hearts towards the things of Christ. And may they give it up. May they repent and lean their whole weight upon, place their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in unison as a congregation. I know that hearts are joined with me right now for unbelievers in the audience. Do not give them rest. Sick the hounds of heaven on them to save them by your grace and by your wondrous, wondrous love. It is in Jesus' name we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we've been walking through the hall of faith. We use that phrase a lot, but I want us to imagine it as a, a hall, as a long, old cathedral, high ceilings, timber struts, maybe stained glass windows. And we've been walking through and seeing these pictures of enduring faith, faithful men and women, yet flawed men and women, fruitful men and women, yet far from perfect. And yet we're meant to look at them and realize that the doctrine we learned in the first ten chapters of Hebrews fleshes itself out in real life practical ways. That genuine faith works. Genuine faith endures. Genuine faith draws near, holds fast to the anchor of our soul. Genuine faith is not storm-tossed. It's not tossed to and fro by the winds. It's not taken off guard when persecution comes. It doesn't wonder where God is when times get tough. That doesn't mean that our faith is perfect, but it does mean that our faith endures. If faith is something that is given by God at salvation, it is a gift from God, not something we give Him, then that same faith that He gives us for salvation is the same faith that causes us to endure and persevere and stay the course every step of the way. And so, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed learning about Abraham and Noah and Moses and Jephthah. Wasn't Jephthah an interesting character? And yet what I got out of understanding Jephthah was that even this guy who had been rejected, who was persecuted from without and from within, had confidence. Confidence that God would use him and see him through. Now we have a few more examples to look at before we finish the Hall of Faith, but we're going to skip just a bit ahead this morning. And we're going to look at the ultimate example 
of enduring faith. And so imagine, if you will, walking through this hall and seeing all of these Old Testament saints, and then there's a picture at the end, and it's a picture of Jesus Christ. And at the bottom, on the frame, it has this phrase, for the joy set before Him. For the joy set before Him. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's set in this context of seeing all of these faithful saints. Now we're going to look at the most faithful example of enduring faith. One who ran the race with endurance. And so we're called to emulate Him. We're called to focus on Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at the text one more time. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And right there in the center of this pericope, when it mentions Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, it has this clause who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm driving down the road during the Christmas season and I see in every other yard large letters that say, Joy, I honestly don't think about this joy. I don't think about the joy set before Christ. I don't think about the joy that fueled him to be able to endure the cross, despising the shame. No, no I think of the baby in the manger. Joy to the world. I think of angels singing. Shepherds rejoicing. Magi visiting much later. And yet, joy is here. So what is it about the incarnation that causes us to use this description over and over and perhaps forget about Christ's joy? Let me explain it this way. I think it's important to understand Christ's joy. What this joy is and how it fueled Him to endure because, you might want to write down this statement, it is because of His joy that our joy is made possible. Let me say that again. It is His joy that makes our joy possible. So what I would like to do today and then on Christmas Eve is I would like to look at joy. Today, I think it would help us to understand what exactly is Christ's joy? What is this future joy, this joy that was set before Him, this joy that gave Him the ability, the, the right attitude, the endurance to endure a cross and to despise shame, whatever that means. And I think if we can understand that joy, then on Christmas Eve, we'll seek to understand our joy. Because His joy is what makes our joy possible. Let's look at these two points here. What was this joy set before Him? That's the first question we want to answer. And then secondly, how did that joy fuel endurance? So let's dive right in. 
What was this joy set before him? Now, don't worry, I'm going to come back in a few weeks and we're going to cover verses 1 through 3 in, in a deeper, more full exposition. But today we're going to focus just on this phrase. It is easy to skip over this phrase. In fact, some commentaries don't even mention it. But yet it was the very reason that he was able to accomplish his mission. It says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Let's start there. The ESV says, the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, this same preacher, I'm referring to the author of Hebrews, uses this word author back in chapter 2. Let me read it for you. By the way, just so your heads aren't swimming, we're going to cover a lot of Scripture today. I don't expect you to turn there, just write down the references, but we're going to do a lot of what's called high Christology. So put your thinking caps on, try to focus as much as you can. We want to seek to understand the person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ, Christ, the very object of our faith. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. What is the author, or, or what is the description of the author of our salvation? Well, a good description might be pioneer. Uh, it's it's the, the first one through. He's, he's the first one, the initiator. But he's also the one who sees it through. The first one through, the leader, the chief, the pioneer, but also the one who completes the task. Perfector literally means completer. Now, if we're saved by grace through faith, and Jesus is both the pioneer and the completer of our faith, we see that come to fruition at the cross. The very reason for which He came, it is the cross by where, by where we hear, tetelestai, it is what? Finished. It is finished. He is the author and completer, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, you think about how important this is for this storm-tossed church, this church that keeps backing away from the truths of the gospel because they're tired of the tension of persecution. And the preacher says, no, 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 no. Hold fast. Draw near. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I like the way William Lane says it. He says, the writer reminds his audience that Jesus passed through humiliation and shame to the glory of the Father's right hand. He himself was perfected and obtained perfection for all who believe in him and obey him by the unique offering of himself to God. The lamb at Passover was replaced by the lamb of God. And in that sacrifice, faith was completed, as it were. It was perfected at the cross. And now we can stand justified. Sinners who earned a paycheck of death, who were staring at a future eternity of judgment, now can stand in the presence of God by His work. Now you think about how important that is for someone who is scared of persecution, for someone who is scared of pain, for someone who is fearful of shame. They're reading this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And faith was perfected at the cross. And by the way, I also mentioned that faith that God gave us is the faith that sustains us. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so as we, we learned last week, that's the kind of confidence we need when tough times come. That's the kind of chutzpah, right? Not an arrogance, but a trust in God. That what God began in us, He will complete. That when we encounter rejection and persecution, it is fixing our eyes on the object of our faith who did not just make salvation possible, but purchased a bride. You're saying, well, that's, that's a lot of high Christology there. I'm not even doing the text yet. 
but it helps us to understand what Christ did. You see, here in the middle of this text, he's not just the author and perfecter of faith, but he's also the example. And if you remove the chapter breaks, Jesus Christ is in the hall of faith. In fact, he's the last and the best. He's the one that we would fix our eyes on in that long hallway and say, hey man, this is great. These guys are encouraging. Even this, this, this fellow here, Samson, I like to learn from him. But Jesus, he, he's the one. He's the one I want to understand. He's the one that, that I, I know went through the toughest ordeal, the greatest pain, both spiritually and physically. You ever think about that? I heard someone say one time, it's like, yeah, well, I know Jesus died on the cross and, and he was whipped and beaten, but, but I mean, he was God. He could take it. Can I tell you that's almost blasphemous because you don't understand the full humanity of Christ? Yes, he is fully God and he did not give up any of that deity, but he became fully man and the pain he felt was as great, I would go so far as to say it was greater than anything anyone has ever felt because he didn't deserve it. He committed no sin. At least when we're being done wrong, it's like, well, we've done wrong. So, you know, our hands aren't completely clean. So the physical pain he felt was huge, but, but what other kind of pain did he feel? Spiritual pain. When he says in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. That's not the cup of pain as bad as crucifixion was. It's the cup of spiritual pain. Because on the cross, the just wrath of our triune Godhead was set upon Christ. He bore the judgment the just wrath that was due for mankind. And he absorbed the blows. So when it talks about him enduring the cross, you have to put in there, you have to say, the most unimaginable physical and spiritual pain that is possible. And yet he endured it. And yet he endured it. How? For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. So what is this joy? Because if every jot and tittle is inspired, that's pretty important. And if I can understand his joy, then I can understand my joy. And if I can understand how he endured that kind of pain, then I can understand how to be faithful and endure it as well. Amen? You're saying, this is a Christmas sermon? Amen. Amen. Well, what was this joy set before him? Well, look at verse 2. I think there's a clue in this verse here. It says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then look at this progression, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think that gives us our clue there. This joy, this joy that is set before him, he's at the crossroads of the cross. Think about it. In Gethsemane, he can punt or he can go through with it. He can say, I'm done. I'm going back to heaven. Mankind is left under judgment. And he says, you know, I'm just not interested. Or he can go forward with it. And it says he went forward, he went ahead with it for the joy set before him. I think the answer is right there and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to Christ's own words the night before his crucifixion in his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's interesting. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work 
now glorify me together with yourself the way it was beforehand. The joy set before him is inextricably wrapped up in the image of sitting down at the right hand of God. When he is in Gethsemane and he is sweating, as it were, drops of blood, and he's saying, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but thine. And he went forward with it. It's because he could see into the future the joy set before him, and he saw his throne. He saw him seated at the right hand of God. You're saying, what, so he just missed being in heaven? No, no, no. There's so much that goes with that. Being seated at the right hand of God. Being glorified the way he was before. If you're taking notes, I would, I would simply sum it this way. What kept him from quitting? The joy set before him. Being seated at the right hand of God, which entails two things. One, having accomplished the will of the Father. Number one, having accomplished, when he says it, is finished. He accomplished the mission for which he came, number one. Number two, being glorified together with the Father. Remember what being seated at the right hand of God meant. The right hand is a ruling position. The son of my right hand. Even like the name Benjamin, as the son of my right hand is what that means. And it was his place, his role from eternity past, the second person of the Godhead. He's ruling. He's at the right hand of God the Father. The joy set before him was knowing that he pleased the Father, that he accomplished the Father's will, and that he would once again be with him, ruling in glory the way he was before. I want to look at the first one there. The first one I just entitled Completion. Completing the Father's will, okay? And there's a lot that even goes with that. Let me give you a few, and then we'll go on to the second one. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Completion. John 4.34 says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus was consumed with doing the Father's will. You think there might be some application there? He was consumed with doing the Father's will. His joy was found in completing the will of the Father. Fully human like us. When he woke up in the morning, you're having coffee. Maybe, maybe you got to sit down and enjoy some, some bagels and coffee with Jesus. What are you doing today? Hey, man, I'm excited. I'm going to be about the will of my Father. Really? Yeah, it's what drives me. You, you realize that, that the Pharisees are, 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 are waiting to entrap you. You realize the Sadducees want to run you out of town. You realize you have one among you who wants to betray you. Yeah, yeah, I get all that. And it's painful. It's going to be tough. But I get to fulfill the will of my Father. I could stop right here and say that's enough for us to, to live on for a while, right? Do we have a passion to do the will of our Father? You say, well, what's the Father's will? Right here. This is His will. This is His directive will. Sufficient for life and godliness. Amen? There's something else here. Remember, this is, I read you the high priestly prayer. And high priests in the temple never sit. And yet, what is the joy set before him here? Sitting. And yet, Hebrews calls him the, the great high priest, our great high priest. Hebrews 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. I've accomplished it. How was He able to go through it? What was the joy that drove Him? 
accomplishing the will of the Father. You know, we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. But in reality, we probably should sing joy to the world, what the Lord has done, right? Because that's what it's really about. It's not the incarnation that is the pinnacle. It's the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying act on the cross. Let's look at the second aspect of joy, but, but before we go there, there's something else that happened in the cross. There's, there's, there's other benefits, you might say, other parts of the joy that drove him. You see, he didn't just accomplish the will of the Father, but wrapped up in accomplishing the will of the Father was also the death of death. You ever think about that? The fulfillment of the prophecy on the cross, Christ killed death. In that moment, the seed of the woman had a bruised heel, but he crushed the serpent's head, and death died. Accomplishing the will of the Father is also about bringing the death of death. There's one other thing, though, too. He purchased a bride. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And then now we see in Revelation 5.9, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, gospel, and nation. We can rightly sing, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind, right? And that was the will of the Father, to crush death, to purchase a bride. And so when he's at a crossroads of pain, and the cross is before him, he sees the joy set before him, fulfilling the Father's will. In that killing death, in that purchasing a bride, and there's more. Secondly, the joy set before him was the glorification of the Son. By obeying and fulfilling the will of the Father, he brought glory to the Father. But by also fulfilling the will of the Father, he would be glorifying himself. Think about the ascension. Can you imagine what it must have been like that day in heaven? After Christ's death, resurrection, he spends time on the earth, he's ascended into heaven. Can you imagine the parade? Can you imagine the pomp and circumstance? Christ walking towards his throne, the royal robes, the music, the singing. That was the joy set before him. And we can't even comprehend that because we're fallen beings, we're created beings. But Jesus is not only worthy of worship, it is His very ontology. He is the Creator, the Redeemer. In no way bringing glory to Himself is selfish. It is who He is. We were created for worship. And so He is glorified. And in that new, um, in that revisited position of glory, He now has a new work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, he daily intercedes for the bride he purchased. He daily, as a high priest, intercedes for the Father on our behalf so that we might endure and remain faithful as he endured and remained faithful. So you can see why when we say his his future joy, the joy set before him, was in sitting down. There's a whole lot to that meaning. But if you want to remember two things, it's in fulfilling the will of the Father and being glorified 
the way he was before. That's the joy set before him. Now, hearing that, reading this, you're meant to go, okay, that's interesting, but, but how? How specifically did that help him to endure? And how can I emulate that? How did that joy fuel endurance? How could anyone, much less one who lived in glory with the triune God from eternity past, who never did anything wrong, how could they possibly endure the cross and despise the shame? I don't even like it when someone insults me. I don't even like it when I'm shortchanged. And that the King of Heaven was willing to do this? It's hard for us to even imagine how bad an instrument of torture the cross was. Developed by the Phoenicians, perfected by the Romans to be the premier tool of execution to not only kill someone, but to, be the, to, to bring about the greatest amount of pain and shame. That's the whole point of the cross. That's why when, when Paul, who is a Roman citizen, died, it was a privilege for him as a citizen to exercise his right to be beheaded. Then the crucifixion was, was reserved for criminals, for traitors. It was meant to be painful. It was meant to last for days. The only reason it did with Christ is because they would come by and break his limbs. Of course, they didn't have to with Christ. But they would oftentimes leave people up there for days. You were hanging there naked. It was shameful. To be naked, especially in a Jewish society, was the height of embarrassment. And yet he endured for the joy set before him. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's get specific. Because I need specifics to be able to do hard things, right? Think about when Christ was taunted with coming down from the cross. Come on down, if you're God. You remember what else they said? He trusts in God in a mocking fashion. You might say, amen. He accomplishes the will of God. And yet he stayed the course. Or when he was tempted by Satan to call down legions of angels, how did he respond? It is written. Every response was, it is written. You might say it this way, it is the will of God. So every temptation that came towards him, every, every temptation to quit was responded with, but I love to do God's will. But I love what God loves. I love the Word of God. It is written. I trust in God. My food is to do the will of the Father. I'm excited to do the will of the Father. It doesn't mean that the pain and the shame was any less. Surely it wasn't. But in comparison, his desire to do God's will was so much greater. I wrote down a couple of things here. I said, pleasing and glorifying the Father was greater than the pain. Doing the Father's will was greater than the persecution. Obeying the Father because it pleased Him was greater than pleasing Himself. You think that has some application for us? I'm starting to see a parallel here then with this persecuted church in Hebrews. I think if, if I had the opportunity to sit down with them and discuss this letter, I think I might ask the question, how much do you value glorifying God as compared to how much do you value the avoidance of pain and shame? But then after thinking about that, I thought, you know, I'd have to ask myself that question first. How much do I value? 
I mean, really treasure, really get excited about accomplishing the will of God, bringing glory to God by obeying Him as compared to, put the other weight on the scale, avoiding pain. Because I don't like pain. I'm good at avoiding pain. Can I get an amen out there? Yeah. We, we are a society that avoids pain. We don't even like headaches, right? I mean, how, how many of us go and ask our wives because we, we know they have it in their purse for Advil? My wife's a, a, a walking drugstore. She's always got stuff, right? Help me avoid the pain. Help me avoid the pain. There's nothing wrong with that. But my point is this. We're so sensitive to the pain that we've probably lost the value of bringing glory to God through obedience. We're so afraid of legalism in the church that we've probably lost the value of what it means to obey to bring glory to God, right? And yet I read Psalm 119 and he says, Oh, how I love thy law. He's not saying, Oh, how I love thy regulations. Is he? No, he's saying, oh, how I love to bring glory to God. Oh, how I love to understand the higher things of God. Oh, how I love to understand that what God loves, I too can love. That's not legalism, that's obedience. That's delighting in doing the will of the Father. That's bringing glory to Him. And when that is on fire, when that is strength, and when that consumes our mind and our affections, then guess what? Our concern for our pain goes down. It doesn't mean that it hurts any less. It means that in the light of God's glory, it pales in comparison. I think it's important to realize that when we came to faith in Christ, there wasn't just a transfer of allegiance. There was a transfer of affection. And that's what's lost today in American evangelicalism. I love doctrine. I'm all about doctrine. But I think we've lost the understanding of how our affections have changed. And our hearts should long for the things that Christ longed for. To do the will of the Father. And to bring glory to Him. But you say, Pastor, this is hard to imagine because... We haven't undergone persecution yet. I don't know how I'll respond. I mean, I can get excited. I can go rah-rah, I can give an amen, but I, I don't know. And, and that's a fair response. So let's look at the second one. He didn't just endure the cross, which none of us will ever have to do. What's that second phrase there? Despising the shame despising the shame. For the joy set before him, for the desire to please God, he despised the shame. Literally, it didn't make a difference to him. Literally, it wasn't that big of a deal. Literally, he had contempt for the shame. He regarded it as nothing. Now, here's the interesting thing. I don't know how I'll respond in persecution. I don't think you know. I think we pray that we'll be faithful. I do know how I respond when shamed. I hate to be shamed. I, I, I hate, as we learned last week, when rejected. You know the thing that gnaws at me? Well, what does that person think? If I could just make that person understand, I would feel better. I don't care about the consequences so much, but I just feel like I need to make them understand that I'm not crazy, that I'm not stupid, that I'm not some whacked-out religious cult follower. It's a fear of man thing, though, if we're honest. Jesus despised the shame. Oh, he was shamed in the world's eyes. But in comparison to the joy set before him, it's like, I don't care what they think. He held it in contempt. He despised it. 
You think, this is, you think this is a weapon that will really, really hurt, that will damage me, that will thwart the path I'm on? Not a chance. Because for the joy set before me, I'm staying the course. I want to bring glory to God. If this means bringing shame to me, so be it. Did you catch that? Are we willing to be shamed for the things of Christ? Are we willing to be considered fools for Christ. That's really the term, isn't it? We have to get over caring about what people think. We have to get over a fear of man. And the only way to do that is to have a fear of God, to be concerned with what God thinks. Nothing compared to what people, to what God thought. And so Jesus has this very strong future joy, we might talk about it. This future joy that's forever before him that he's, he's thinking about because we know he got up early and he prayed to God. We know he knew the scriptures backwards and forward. So this, this future joy was ever present before him. So when he came to a crossroads, the decision, is this a chance for me to please self or to please God? It was easy to make the choice to please God. Oh, but this is heavy persecution. Oh, this is really bad shame. It's okay because I have this joy set before me. And I think we can make a parallel here. So if we could apply it for just a moment. Christ writes in John 15, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy might be in you. My joy might be in you. So somehow we can have the joy that Christ had in us and that your joy will be made full. Well, what are these things that he's spoken to them that will, or spoken to us that will give us the ability to have his joy? Well, the previous verse tells us, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what he tells us here is that the joy said before him was to accomplish the will of the Father and to bring himself glory. Well, that second part's not for us, right? Okay. But the parallel is we too can have the same joy set before us by seeking to accomplish the will of the Father and bringing glory to Christ. Let me say that again. We can have Christ's joy. When you see the big sign, joy to the world, when you read the, the, uh, the, the Christmas cards, joy to the world, we can have the joy of Christ when we seek to be passionate about doing the will of the Father and bringing Christ's glory. And if we will set that forever before us, then you know what? We can despise the shame. We can endure persecution. It's still going to be tough, but it pales in comparison. Living a life that pleases God, following His commands, sharing the gospel with others, replicating yourself in discipleship fuels our endurance. And we're not looking for a throne to sit down on. But we're looking to hear a statement, aren't we? Say it with me. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what fuels us. You say, but trials are tough. Trials are tough, and they are. But the same God that created us and created the worlds is the same one who is not taken by surprise at the trials that come our way. He's the same one that ordains those trials to come our way. He's not the author of evil, but Satan is on a short leash, and anything that comes our way has to first pass his throne. Let me read to you from the Apostle Peter, who learned over a period of time. 1 Peter 1.5 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The author and perfecter of faith 
watch this, chooses to strengthen our faith through trials. And our faith is strengthened when we choose to please God and bring Him glory rather than ourselves. Amen? So now let me leave you with a Christmas message and see how it now fits with the cross. How does the incarnation fit with propitiation? Tell me this text doesn't sound different in light of what we just learned. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Joy to the world starts with the incarnation, but it's the path to humiliation. And ultimately, it's what brought about glorification, which we will be able to experience one day as well. It's kind of interesting. You start to look at Christmas verses in a different light. The prophecy in Micah 5.2, where Christ is going to be born, is now not just a location where Christ is born in a manger, but it's a place where the path towards humiliation starts. And we all know that, that, that prophecy, but do you realize what it says towards the end of that? From the one who will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He stepped down from glory into humiliation, towards propitiation, and then up through glorification. How was he able to do that and endure the cross and despise the shame? For the joy set before him. Well, let me, uh, let me finish with Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy.